Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Seed Talk. My name is Lane, and I'm being joined today by a very special guest, Jonathan Lease of Spring Forth Farm. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Lane. It's great to be joining you. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here on Seed Talk. And we have a really interesting topic that has developed as Jonathan and I were planning what we we're going to talk about. Because at first he proposed to talk about these cool season crops that perform dramatically better when grown in tunnels. And simultaneously, he was working on his crop plan for the year and realized, actually, those seven crops are the only seven annual crops we are growing next year. Right, Jonathan? Yeah, we we have a very small farm and we're um, reducing our annual space in order to plant more perennials. I know we'll talk about that. But basically, we just decided we're going to grow the seven most profitable crops. We we didn't start with seven. We just said we're going to yeah. fill up the space in order of most profitable, starting at the top. So that's what we did. And by the time we finished seven crops, we had filled all the beds that we allotted ourselves. And so that's it. That's all we're growing. Yeah. And we have a lot to talk about today. So we're going to be dividing this conversation into two parts. In part one today, we'll be going over some tips for growing in tunnels as well as two of Jonathan's seven cool season crops. And then we'll finish up the remaining five flowers in next week's episode. And I just want to say that you'll learn about growing in tunnels today. But even if you don't grow in tunnels, Jonathan's going to be sharing lots of tips and tricks for growing and harvesting these flowers. So be sure to stick around for that. And I also wanted to say that all the beautiful images you're going to see today, if you're watching over on YouTube, were provided by Jonathan. So thank you for that. And this podcast is sponsored by the Gardener's Workshop. So if you have the need for any seeds, tools, supplies, or online courses, hop on over to thegardenersworkshop.com and check it out. So Jonathan, can you introduce yourself to everyone as well as your farm? Yeah, so um, my name is Jonathan Lease. My wife, Megan, and I have Springforth Farm, which is in Hurdle Mills, North Carolina. That's about 20 miles north of Durham. Um, north of Chapel Hill. So central North Carolina, we're in zone seven, and it's like the northern Piedmont. So uh, an agricultural area, um, depleted clay soils, because it's been in agriculture, you know, for a long time. And I think those are challenges that a lot of people face. Uh, now, our farm is unique. So we wanted to start a homestead business. So we we started out thinking, oh, we'll just grow a few flowers and this and that. And you know, the flowers were so successful. We really enjoyed it. We got really involved in it and it grew and grew and grew. And so now we're in the process of reimagining what it can look like to get back to a homestead business. So our goal is to grow all or most of our own food and for the farm to support the um, homestead and the property development and things like that. And then I have an off-farm job. I'm a firefighter in Durham. Um, so we're looking for ways to reduce the amount of time that we spend farming. And it's okay to also make less money for us at this point. Um, right. So that is going to put a little bit of this conversation in context. Our, our business model is that we sell through two wholesalers that specialize in local flowers. And we only sell through the end of May or the very beginning of June, depending on the year. So our goal is to hit those expensive spring flowers for weddings through these two wholesalers um, and then to have the summer off 
um, from the farm as we're really working on homestead stuff, usually go on some family vacations in the summer. In the fall, we come back and plant all of our cool flowers, which is basically the only thing we grow because we want everything to bloom by the end of May. Um, so we're planting all of our cool flowers. We're finished by hopefully Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas. Um, because we're planting in tunnels, we can plant later. And I should say we only grow annuals in tunnels because that's the only way for us to get them early enough. Right. Um, and then we have some time off in the winter and things start ramping up in February. Uh, things start getting busy again. And then usually by mid to late February, we're selling anemones, maybe a few other crops. Um, and then that goes through the end, the end of May. And the way that we got to that is we started out by saying, what do we want our farm to be? We wanted it to be seasonal for us. We wanted time off from the farm. Um, we did not want to be reliant on the farm for our family income. That was a decision that we made to have less stress in our lives. And, you know, now we have a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So as they're getting older and we're just thinking about how to even have less labor, the, the, the main labor of our farm is um, taking out flowers at the end of the season and starting new flowers. I mean, we can't reduce our harvest labor, but like, you right. know, planting the flowers is what really ex ex extends our labor season. So we're looking at ways to grow more perennials and fewer annuals. We grow in one 30 by 96 foot hoop house and three 80 by 16 foot caterpillar tunnels from Farmer's Friend. I know there are some other companies that make them. That's where we got ours. So one of those caterpillar tunnels. So this year we're taking out one of the caterpillar tunnels out of annual production, putting shade cloth on it and planting shade loving perennials because our farm, there's no shade um, that we can grow under. So uh, all our beds are like two and a half feet wide and 80 feet long. So we're going to plant three beds of hellebores and then a bed that at the moment we think will be split between Solomon Seal and Lily of the Valley. So um, that's stuff that we can sell. It's a very high demand from wedding designers. And that's our target market. Um, ultimately, we're going to take a second of the Caterpillar tunnels and plant peonies in it as a way to get peonies earlier ahead of other people in our area. And a third Caterpillar tunnel, we're going to convert to vegetable production for our family. I mean, we already save out some of these beds to grow vegetables. So we're just going to consolidate that into one tunnel. And then we'll keep the 30 by 96 foot hoop house for annual production. And we're also taking a lot of our field beds that we used to grow annuals in when we grew year round and planting spring blooming perennials in those. We're just starting that process. We're just deciding what we're going to plant. So uh, besides some peonies that we're not ready to harvest yet, we don't have any planted. We have some nine bark, I guess, and some baptisia, um, but we're just at the beginning of that process. Yeah. So tunnels are really critical in terms of your business model, because that's what makes it possible for you to have so many flowers early in the season. Yeah, um, you know, that's that's what works for us and allows us to get in early, get out early and contain the farm and to grow the highest dollar crops. Now, I will say a lot of other farmers in our area are growing in tunnels. It's not like, for the most part, we're the only ones that have these crops at, at a certain time, but it does allow us both to have some flowers ahead of like the real glut and also to better match the flower blooming with the demand in the wedding schedule. And that's going to be different in different areas of the country based on temperature and whether it's destination weddings or not and things like that. So when is your high wedding season essentially in your area? Really um, April through Mother's Day. 
So start starting in April, maybe the maybe the last week of March, but definitely starting in April. And then after Mother's Day, things slow down. And the really what got us into this schedule is we've always done wholesale. We've always done almost exclusively wholesale. Um, and we used to handle our own deliveries. So we would have relationships with, with florists, shop owners, and they would close their shops in the summer for a week or two, or they'd go on vacation and leave someone else in charge who wouldn't end up buying flowers from us. Um, their demand, even if they were open, their demand was a quarter of what it was in the spring and fall. And then focusing on these cool flowers, we can't use our tunnels for fall production because we need to have the flowers planted. Um, and also we want the summer off. We don't want to be starting them and transplanting them. It's just such an interesting business model, even for people that don't like being out in the heat. I just think it's really smart that you come in in the spring and then you're out and you can spend the rest of the year with your family and then just back at it in the fall and get ready for the next spring. I really like that. And I think that would appeal to a lot of people. It's a really great idea. Yeah, uh, we've noticed more farms doing that, more flower farms doing that. Um, And I think it's actually good for the industry because the demand is very different, at least in our area, like in April versus August. And so having fewer farms, having fewer product on the market in August, it's like the the amount of product is expanding and contracting to meet demand. And so there are farms, especially if you go to a farmer's market, you probably have to go year round. But if you're more um, event focused, more wholesale focused, it's easier to just grow in the high demand times. So first of all, thank you for your service to your community as a firefighter too. I just wanted to throw that in. How many acres does it equate to that you're actually farming on? Oh, wow. It's, it's tiny. Um, If you, if you were to draw a line around our tunnels, our well, our cooler, the fields that we don't use right now, but eventually we'll put into perennials, all the paths and everything that's about an acre. But for context right now, or this past year, we grew on 19 80 foot long beds. Between February and May or early June, in those 19 beds, we were able to sell about 30,000 stems of oh, flowers. Wow. So, one of the things about growing in tunnels is a very productive environment. And that's one yeah. of the things that allows this model of our farm to work. Do you hire any outside help, or is it you and your wife, Megan, doing everything essentially? We have in the past. We didn't this year. We probably won't in the future. Um, we had hired help and then we were doing more childcare. As the girls are getting older, it's made more sense for us to pay more for like preschool and then more of the farm work ourselves. A lot of these spring flowers only bloom for three to four weeks. And by the time, and we're only offering part-time employment for four months a year, so we don't have people returning. So by the time we could train someone up to harvest that flower, it was basically done. And we'd have to be training them out harvesting, you know, other flowers. And we just never felt like we could get people up to the speed that we needed. It was too stressful for us. And so it was, it, and then, like I said, you know, the girls go to a wonderful preschool. They go four days a week, just in the morning, um, but on a farm this size, plus their naps, that's enough time for us to do um, all of this farm work, uh, even with me working full time. Um, and so that's another reason why this size farm And this business model makes sense for us. And and once again, like, I just think this is really important. We are setting the parameters of the business. Now, we haven't always done that. Sometimes we gave in to the demands of the business that we didn't really want to meet. And it was, you know, stressful, like, oh, we have to do this. But that's just not true. You know, like, these are the hours we want to work. These are the times of year we want to work. 
this is the amount of money we feel like we need to make. And then hopefully all those things can line up. You know, if not, then you have to figure out how to make it work. But especially on a small farm where you've decided it's not going to pay your mortgage, I think that is really empowering for the farmers to make the decisions for the lifestyle and style of business and level of stress that they want to, to operate. I know there are people who want to have their whole family income come from their farm. More power to you. I mean, I really admire that. Um, and of course, uh, growing in tunnels in the spring, yeah, you probably need to grow in a longer season, but growing these spring flowers and tunnels is also a great option for that because it's there's just so much potential income there. Yeah. The tunnels also would allow you to just bring income in starting sooner, even if you do also grow in the field. And then it also has the potential to extend your season later as well. Exactly. Because you can grow crops later in the fall, although we don't do that. Um, that's certainly an option, as well as some high value summer crop like Lysianthus, protecting it from rain in a tunnel um, can also really increase its value. And then in addition to your farm and your firefighting, you also have an online on-demand course with the Gardener's Workshop called the No-Till Microscale Flower Farm. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Jonathan and Megan's class, which is just full of information. So be sure to check that out if you want to learn more. Next, I want to talk about tunnels. And could you just start by explaining the difference between caterpillar tunnels, high tunnels, hoop houses, greenhouses? Because I think that can be very intimidating for someone who's just considering getting into some of these things. Absolutely. So we don't have a greenhouse, which is basically a structure with supplemental heat. And if people are interested in that, I would refer them to Gretel and Steve's Adams course with the Gardener's Workshop or any of the podcasts that you've done with them to talk about that. We have unheated structures. Our hoop house or high tunnel, those are synonyms, basically, they describe the same structure. Think about a large greenhouse, but just without the heat. So our high tunnel is 30 feet wide, it's 96 feet long, uh, it's about 14 or 15 feet tall. That's what you see in this picture. So this is a picture of the inside of our high tunnel, right? So you can see it has these eight beds. Um, It has a large airspace, which makes the temperature fairly stable. Um, We paid extra for sides that automatically go up and down on a thermostat and louvers at the ends that automatically go up and down on a thermostat because, you know, in March, if it's it can be 35 degrees and sunny and it can actually get very warm and humid in here and we want it to open up and then the the sun can go behind some clouds and it can get cold and then the sun can come out again. And we just, if we're not home or even if we are home, we want it to take care of itself. Yeah, that's really nice. (laughs) Uh, I I, I really recommend if, if you're building this, you consider that or at least build it in such a way that you could add it later. We also have our three caterpillar tunnels. They get the name caterpillar tunnel because they're, they have strings that go over the plastic as a tensioning mechanism instead of these boards on the side. And it makes it look a little bit like a caterpillar. So that's where the name comes from. We bought ours from Farmer's Friend. Bootstrap Farmer makes some. There may be other companies that make them that I'm not aware of. Um, They're relatively new to the scene. Um, You you used to be able to get kits to to bend your own pipes, like you would go buy fence rails and bend them yourself. But in, in terms of affordable kits that you can purchase ready to go, that's relatively new. Uh, the benefits of them is they're significantly cheaper. Like we built, you know, all three of our other Caterpillar tunnels combined were significantly cheaper than building just this one tunnel. And it's 50% more area uh, for growing. Um, They're less robust. They're not as wide. Uh, They have a smaller air mass, which makes them a little bit more difficult to control the temperature in. Um, 
Ours, they don't seal as well, so they get colder more quickly. They don't hold the heat as well. They're also amazing to grow in, you know. So if that's what you're, if that's what makes sense for you, because you can afford, you know, four of those, but you can only afford one of these, like, or because you only have space for it, or because this is just overkill for your business, um, they're a great option. We use the NRCS cost share, high tunnel cost share, to pay for our caterpillar tunnels in North Carolina. Every state has different rules. I would recommend you talk to your NRCS agent, um, but they covered all three Caterpillar tunnels and they would have possibly covered a fourth as well, but that's what we had room for. So we find the Caterpillar tunnels to be um, really great addition to our farm. They're a little more difficult than the high tunnel to grow in. They're a lot cheaper and they're a lot more accessible. And just as you can see by the structure here, the Caterpillar tunnels are also a lot easier to build. Um, yeah. They're not as robust in terms of snow and wind because they don't have these large trusses, truss structures. So that's something you may need to consider in your growing environment. We've never gone out and knocked snow. Even when we have a foot of snow, we've never knocked snow off of this structure. Um, but we do go out and knock snow off the Caterpillar tunnels. Do you grow any of the annual crops that we're going to talk about today in the field? We don't. We used to. So I can talk about some of the differences we've seen. But um, that was when we grew year round. So as we've moved to just trying to have spring flowers, we we can't get them early enough if we for, for our goal, if we grow them in the field. On top of that, um, you know, uh, just the quality of growing these flowers in the caterpillar tunnels. I mean, I should say listening to, to Lisa, like we've never succeeded in growing flowers, the quality that Lisa describes in our soil, in our fields. But when we grow caterpillar flowers in these tunnels, we, you know, um, we've just noticed very dramatic differences um, from a variety of reasons. They're protected from wind. The sun is more diffuse, so they grow taller. The temperature is, I mean, it can get very hot in these tunnels. So that's an issue in the summer, but at least in the spring, you know, there's more growing degree days, like the total accumulated warmth is more, so they grow faster. Um, so every flower we've grown has grown better in a tunnel. Not all of them grow so much better that it's worth the space. Uh, so sunflowers um, are, you know, we grew sunflowers in the tunnel. It really wasn't worth the space for us. There's some other flowers that, that aren't really worth the space. The seven flowers that we're growing are not only uh, bringing the most income for our farm, but they also responded the the most dramatically to the tunnels. And the reason that I really wanted to have this conversation with you is because Lisa, um, you know, everyone has read Cool Flowers. That book was so inspirational to us in getting us to have this spring only business model. And she's talking about growing flowers in the field. Right. Um, but with because now these caterpillar tunnels are becoming much more common, I think a lot of farmers, a lot of customers of the gardener's workshop have those tunnels. And they may not be thinking about how to grow cool flowers in the tunnels for the for the best effect. So I think it's a, a tool in the toolbox to extend the cool flower season in the spring by four to six weeks. Um, yeah. And then you can still, if they grow well for you in the field, you can still plant them in the field. Those will come in after the ones in the tunnel. Um, and then you could potentially get more in the fall as well to extend the season in that way. Yeah. And it's so funny because since we've been planning this episode, I've had several people contact me and say, which cool flowers should I be growing in tunnels this year? I'm totally lost. And I said, just wait, it's coming. So I think this is going to help a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. These are the ones, I guess, in our climate, at least, that I would start with uh, yeah. in tunnels, um, especially if you're selling to florists, if you're selling to, if you're doing a farmer's market or something like that, um, 
you might think about a slightly different crop mix or maybe more variety so you can make bouquets. I mean, since we, yeah. we don't make bouquets, so we don't, we don't need all of the things that someone who had a bouquet business would need. So the tunnels give you better quality flowers and they also help you out with season extension. Are there any negatives to growing in tunnels? Do you see any increases in disease or pest pressure? Yeah, unfortunately, um, both of those things, just like the tunnels create a better environment for plants, they create a better environment for um, right. <laughs> for diseases and pests. So our primary pests, I know that um, this is not limited to tunnels. This is for everyone, but our aphids and thrips. Um, unfortunately, like it may never get cold enough in the tunnel to kill the aphids and thrips. And I don't know if people know this, but aphids, when they hatch, they're already pregnant. So Wonderful. Yeah, isn't that that's why they multiply so quickly and it's just it it's amazing, but it doesn't really increase my appreciation of them at all. It just makes me more <laughs> horrified that they're coming for our flowers. Um yeah, that's so, pretty so, scary. So because it's so warm in uh, in the tunnel at night, particularly, um, you know, the aphids just can multiply very quickly. So it's very important to be proactive. If you plant flowers in a tunnel, especially the first time, you should already have a plan for how are you going to deal with aphids? How are you going to deal with thrips? Crop selection, I mean, that is an element as well. We maybe have stopped planting some crops that are the most affected. Hygiene, like removing, um, you know, removing crop residue that can host plants. So, so it is the aphids and thrips are really our biggest problems. Um, and then as far as diseases, the fungal diseases can really grow because it's a much more humid environment. So botrytis, sclerotinia, um, downy mildew, those are some of our bigger diseases that we have to deal with in the tunnel. Same thing, you should already have a plan for how you're going to deal with these when you're planting in the tunnel. And it's really important to ventilate, not just to control the temperature, but also to help control the humidity in the tunnel. So planting times are another big difference when you're growing in tunnels. When do you actually transplant your cool flower seedlings out into your tunnels in the fall? Um, so as far as cool flowers go, one of the challenges of growing in a tunnel is stopping them from growing too much because the nighttime air temperature in, the in an unheated tunnel gets down basically just the same as the outside air temperature. Now, maybe for not as long of a period of time, but it still gets very cold, although the ground never freezes. And I think that's one of the big differences. So we need to plant, transplant things later so that they're not too big for us to cover or too big and tender going into that cold weather. So we typically transplant things anywhere between our first expected frost date and um, four to six weeks after our first expected frost date. We have to manage that sort of carefully in order to like make sure that we have things lined up where we have this, the space for our starts and we have the time to transplant each thing when it's ready. So um, that's how we decide which things, that's why we have to spread it out over six weeks, four to six weeks. Otherwise we would probably transplant most things two to four weeks after our last frost date. We just can't fit it all into that one little window. Right. And the typical cool flowers planting time in the field would be getting transplants into the ground six to eight weeks before your first expected frost. So you're saying in an ideal world, if you had all the space to do your seed starting, you would prefer to transplant everything out two to four weeks after your first yeah. expected so, frost. So so our first expected frost date is um, October 15th. So in the field, we would be transplanting things in September. Right. Um, in fact, we transplant everything between the um, end of October, like the last week of October through Thanksgiving is our, our goal for when to have everything transplanted. There's an additional window in the spring, we found that transplanting things in January and February 
is the right time to do it in a tunnel, whereas that is eight to 10 weeks before our last frost date. Um, just the last thing to know about growing in a tunnel is it does open up maybe some new crops to you that you couldn't grow otherwise. So for example, uh, we grow anemones and ranunculus. We can't grow those in the field in our area um, because it's too cold and wet in the winter and it keeps them dry. Um, there are some crops, I mean, I, I can't think of an, an example, but it really, we couldn't plant larkspur in the field, I don't think, in our area because by the time it started growing, it gets hot very quickly. But we have started spring larkspur in a tunnel because we have more time to do it. So um, we don't grow larkspur anymore because of disease issues, but that's just an example. Even if it's too cold in your area to overwinter plants in a tunnel, you're going to be able to get them in much earlier in the spring um, in, that, in that tunnel. So it can still be worth it to you in that regard. Right. And I would say our plants bloom four to six weeks earlier in the tunnel than they would in the field. So now we're going to start moving through some of the individual crops. And for each crop, we're going to do a classic seed talk style. And we're going to ask Jonathan the same questions for every crop. So we're going to find out why it's an important flower for their farm and why it's worth this precious tunnel space that he just described, what his favorite varieties are, if there are any big differences that they've noticed growing in a tunnel versus the field. And then he's going to share some growing tips with us, like spacing, if they plant successions, and generally when they expect these things to bloom. And then also the expected yield off the plants and some harvesting tips. And just keep in mind as we're talking that all of this is specific to Jonathan's growing conditions. So it may be different for you, but we're just sharing what his experiences have been, because I know it's going to be extremely helpful to you, whether you're growing in a tunnel or the field. All right. I'm looking forward to getting started. Okay, so the first crop we're going to talk about is a pretty popular spike flower, and it's going to be snapdragons. So why are these such an important crop to your farm, Jonathan, and why do they warrant that tunnel space? Well, snapdragons are just such a popular spring crop with florists. They can't get enough of them, at least if they're the color that they want. And so we're just able to sell huge amounts of snapdragons and they come in over a nice long time if you plant different groups of snapdragons. And, and so the groups bloom at different times, but in a tunnel, it's even more dramatic than in the field. So by planting different groups, we're able to get a long harvest of snapdragons without having to plant successions of them. So that's one thing we really like about that. They come in a wide variety of colors. They come in a wide variety of shapes. Um, it's, it's able to, you're able to get seed that's not too expensive where you can buy expensive seeds of some specialty varieties. If you want to buy plugs, the plugs are relatively cheap. So I just think, you know, um, there's so many upsides to growing snapdragons and just every, everybody loves snapdragons. It's just such a sign of spring. We would grow more of these. We, we didn't have room to grow more, but we're growing as many as, as we have room for. And they must be highly profitable for you since they made your cut. <laughs> yes, uh, they really are um, specifically just, you know, they command a good price per stem and they have a very high yield. And there's so much variety. I mean, I think that's the other thing. It's like just there's so much variety of snapdragons that like you can never run out of options for what colors or what series or what group you're going to grow. So that just makes a big, a, a really large um, market appeal. Yeah. So can you just briefly touch on what the groups mean in case anyone's not familiar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, snapdragons are divided into different groups, one, two, three, and four. And the groups 
relate to the temperature and day length that that flower needs to bloom. Now, that makes a really big difference in a greenhouse. If you're in the field, it doesn't make that big a difference. And if you're, I, it doesn't spread out that much. But a group one, like Chantilly, will never bloom well in August. And a group four, like Opus or three, will never bloom well in January. Um, we plant groups one, two, and three, um, and they bloom about two weeks apart for us, all with good quality blooms in a tunnel. Group four blooms even later than that, um, but we haven't found varieties that we really like. So the spread between the different groups in terms of bloom time is much more dramatic in a greenhouse setting than in the field. Yeah. So as far, and, and when I say that, to be clear, that's with how the group, planting different groups would spread the time out. You'll still notice in the field, you're going to notice differences in quality of a group that's trying to bloom out of its natural time. Like a group one, like I said, like Chantilly um, or um, the Costa apricot, which is the flower that you see on the left, if you're watching this on YouTube, is never going to bloom um, very well in the summer, um, no matter what conditions you're in. But in a, in a tunnel or in a greenhouse, it will bloom earlier than a group three flower, um, just naturally. And, and we really like being able to spread our harvest out that way. So you'll see a difference, even if all the transplants go in the ground at the same time, the bloom time will be different. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And, and we have found that to be um, just something that we can use to, to make it work really well for us. Yeah, that's very convenient. So do you have favorite varieties and colors of snapdragons that you like to plant? Yeah, so um, we find there's a huge demand for florists for the Chantilly series, which is this open face snapdragon. There's also a lot of demand for Madame Butterfly, which is a double. Um, we aren't growing that this year because uh, we just found it to be more difficult to grow, a little more finicky um, and less productive. So even though it's one of our favorite snapdragons, it just didn't make the cut. If you're looking at this on a uh, on YouTube, on the right, that is Maryland Lavender. And we love lavender snapdragons. It seems to us that every um, every lavender snapdragon looks pretty similar. So we like the Maryland series. It's a group one series that blooms very early for us. But if we wanted something to bloom later, we would just pick a lavender snapdragon from a group three series and it would bloom later and it would extend the amount of time we had that color available. Um, but we love the lavenders. The Costa uh, Silver and the Costa Apricot are also, which you can see the apricot here are also some of our favorites. So are there any differences that you notice growing this in the tunnel versus the field if you ever grew these in the field? We did grow these in the field and they just never made really good blooms. Uh, the group three did, I think maybe by the time it got warm enough, you know, maybe they had the right environmental conditions between the temperature and the daylight, but even they, they weren't the best. Just, I think snapdragons have a really dramatic difference. And I've heard this from a lot of people as though it's not just our own experience, a really dramatic difference between the tunnel and the field. And, and I think that's not like, you may be able to grow excellent field snapdragons, um, that just wasn't our experience, but I would certainly recommend people try it, especially for the summer types of snapdragons, the groups threes and fours. Um, you know, I think this, the, the earlier blooming snapdragons, when they have the right amount of daylight to bloom, it's probably not warm enough for us. Um, and right. so they're not, they're not as happy. So do you grow your snapdragons as one and done, or do you grow them as cut and come again? And how do you space them? Okay. So, um, we've gone back and forth on this. Um, some, a couple of years ago, we spaced them on six by six. This year, we spaced them on eight by eight, which is what we've typically done. And we're going to go back to six by six because 
even though each plant yields fewer stems, each square foot yields more stems. Right. So we get more stems overall, even though each plant has a lower yield, the stems aren't quite as robust. So we would prefer to just have the bigger honking or stems, but having more stems is a bigger difference. So we plant them on six by six. We do pinch them. So it's one plant in a block that we pinch. It's also possible to plant a couple plants in a block and not pinch them. The group one and two snapdragons, so that's Costa, Maryland, Chantilly, those will regrow for us and make beautiful stems all the way through the end of May. The other groups, the groups three that we also grow because they bloom at like a very nice time, those don't have time to make secondary blooms in our season. So that's another advantage for the earlier blooming snapdragons for us. So do you plant successions of snapdragons or do these all go in the ground around the same time? These all go in the ground around the same time, just a little bit after our last frost date. And then when they get tall enough, we pinch them. We want to make sure we do that before there's a heavy frost. And then because we've had success planting like the groups ones and twos and threes to spread out the harvest, we aren't doing successions. We have done January plant transplantings of, we've seeded them in January. I think we transplanted them in February in the past. And those do bloom at a nice time, but they're not as productive as the overwintered snapdragons. And I think by growing group three snapdragons over winter, we have a crop that blooms at the same time as the January planting. So we would rather just do all our, all our transplanting in the fall and let the cool flowers have that nice long environment for getting established. So how long is your snapdragon season, would you say? I know that varies from year to year, but when do you expect to have snapdragons blooming? Uh, we expect to have them in, in, in April, the second or third week of April, probably. And then through the end of our season, which is through the end of May, we'll have the most of them early on, which is also when there's the most demand for them. And it's when we're doing that first cut. And then as they rebloom, it'll be a little bit more spread out. The stems will also be not as robust. So we'll maybe be putting 12 to 15 in a bunch, but they will keep going. I, I'd say they'll make one good second flush. And how many stems do you expect to get per plant? So for snapdragons, when we planted them on eight by eight, we got six stems per plant. And when we planted them on six by six, we got four stems per plant. But if you measure it by foot of bed, which is a, sort of like a better measure for how much income we're going to get, we got three bunches per foot instead of two and a half bunches per foot. So um, in terms of multiply that times several 80 foot beds of snapdragons that were growing and it, it adds up to be quite a substantial difference. And when do you like to harvest snapdragons? What stage is perfect for your purposes? With no more than three flowers open. Um, if you're looking at this, um, you can see the pictures. This is a stage that we like to harvest. We will harvest it with um, only one flower open. Uh, we'll even harvest it with one flower colored, but no flowers open um, in order to make an order. And then instead of putting that in the cooler, we'll put it in our germinating room, which is warmer, to encourage it to open more. Most spike flowers, once they start opening, will continue to open, although you need to be aware that the richness of the color can diminish. So it's important to store them in a, in a flower food that contains sugar. Um, but there's a, there's a wide range for harvesting snapdragons. Now, one of the really fun things to do with the snapdragon is to watch the bumblebees just push their way into the oh, snapdragon. Yes. But once the bee pollinates that floret, it's going to fall off. And so that's why we're trying to pick them with fewer flowers open. Yes. Anything else you want to add about snapdragons? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> they're, they're one of our favorite flowers to grow. All right. Now we're going to move on to scabiosa. You might know it as pincushion flower. And this is actually a variety that 
technically is a perennial in some areas. The botanical name is Scabiosa caucasica, and the cultivar is Fama or Fama, depending on how you want to pronounce that. So what do you like about this? Why is this such an important crop for your farm, and why is it worth the tunnel space? Um, well, for one, it's gorgeous. Um, it is. And as, as you can see, Fama, I think, has the largest diameter flowers of any Scabiosa, and with these very big ray petals, um, that, that all the scapiosa have. It does only come in these two colors, blue and white, but like that's more than enough. Yeah. One of the things that we love about Fama is it's incredibly productive over an incredibly long season. So we started getting harvesting Fama in early April and it's still blooming in our tunnels. We've stopped oh, harvesting it because wow. our season's over, but it it's still blooming. So it just keeps going. And um, we are, the seed is fairly expensive. So this year we are going to try and, and use it as a perennial. We've never done that before, um, but that's that's our experiment with the yeah. family. And I just want to mention that not all scabiosa can be grown as perennials. So that's just something to pay attention to when you're ordering your seeds. So are there any differences that you've noticed growing this in the tunnel versus the field? The biggest difference is how early it starts blooming. And of course, for our business, that's critically important. So it's a big difference for us if a flower starts blooming the first week of April versus the second or third week of May. And then we're only going to be selling flowers through the, the first week of June. So we've got, you know, that extra six weeks of harvest with the, the family. It's also very tall and it gets taller as the season progresses. So it doesn't start out as tall, but I mean, it's easily four feet tall in the, in the tunnel right now. It's not very branchy. So it's really like one single stalk with a flower on the end and maybe um, two little side shoots somewhere on that stalk which if you're looking at this online, you can see the sort of little airy elements at the bottom, but it's incredibly tall, which if you're selling to florists is also a huge boon. So how do you space your scabiosa in the tunnels? So we do the Fama scabiosa on six by six for the same reason um, as we do the snapdragons on six by six, which is just, we get more stems per square foot out of our tunnel. Trying to perennialize it, I think, that might be a challenge that they're so close together as the, as the plants get bigger and bigger. So I've heard of people keeping it for, for three or four years. I don't think we'll be able to do that because of that spacing. And this is a cut and come again type of plant. Do you Absolutely. Plant and it just, we just love that it is so slow and steady. I mean, some other flowers that we'll talk about like Godesia just all bloom at once and you're out there cutting, 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 trying to get it all in. And, and, we're limited by our ability to cut that flower because it, you know, it's all blooming at the same time. And, and the family is just so nice because the harvest is spread out over such a long window, but it just keeps going. That's a really good point. And that makes it a really valuable plant in a landscape setting as well. So do you plant any successions of this scabiosa? No, we don't plant successions. We just, we have the one overwintered planting that starts blooming in April and blooms for two months. Um, and like I said, if, if we were selling more flowers in the summer and kept cutting it, I don't know when it would stop. Um, yeah. it, just, it just never stops. Do you have any idea of the number of stems per plant? I do. We got four stems per plant, which is three bunches per foot. Now that might sound like it's not that much for scabiosa, but just keep in mind, it kept, it kept blooming. We would have gotten more if we had kept harvesting it. Right. Um, and even at that not harvesting it to its potential is still absolutely worth growing for us. But, you know, if we were, if we were selling, if, you know, now I think they're still, it's still making beautiful flowers out there. And do you have any harvesting tips for this? What stage do you like to cut it at? So we like to cut it as early as when one of the outer petals is fully colored. 
even if it's not fully open, they open very quickly. Um, I think all Scaviosa are like that. So uh, if you're looking at this online, the Scaviosa you see here um, is more open than we would like. I think it, we had a very cool spring that allowed us a lot of leeway for harvesting flowers. So flowers like this were fine because it was so cool. But um, if we had a warm spring, we would have had to harvest this much tighter and much more frequently. And then you also sent me a picture of this beautiful seed head that forms after the flowers have faded. You said you don't use this in your business, but it is beautiful. Yeah. And if someone, once again, if someone was selling flowers through the summer, they could. Um, for people who aren't looking at the picture, this looks very much like the Scabiosa stellata. Right. Star, ping pong. Yeah. Ping pong seed head. It's a little bit smaller. Um, I think it has a sort of beautiful bluish overtone to it. And it's, the, the scabiosa stellata is very branchy, so this is not branchy. It's like just this one ping pong ball on top of a three or four foot tall stem. Oh, I love it. So beautiful. Well, that was it for this week's episode, but we still have five more flowers to cover with Jonathan. So be sure to join us next week for part two. Meanwhile, you can check out Springforth Farm NC on Instagram or Facebook or springforthfarmnc.com to connect with Jonathan and Megan. And like we mentioned before, they have a fantastic on-demand course with the Gardener's Workshop called the No-Till Microscale Flower Farm. Jonathan will be describing more of what that course entails at the end of our next episode, but I'll also put the link in the show notes in case you're interested in learning more. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. And until next time, happy growing.